Z1077 welcomes you to Up Close, a weekly public affairs program presented by Z1077 News. You're invited to call in with your questions and comments. Our call-in number is 366-8471. Now, your host for Up Close, Gary Danielle. Well, thank you, mystery announcer, wherever you are. And welcome to the Z1077 Up Close Show on this drop-dead gorgeous March 31st of 2023. The Z1077 Up Close Show is a special presentation presented in the public interest by Z1077 News. I'm your host, Gary Dignot. Our producer is Michelle Alley, and our phone number for you to call and participate is 760-366-8471. And I'm delighted to, to welcome into the studio today two representatives from the San Bernardino County District Attorney's Office, Public Information Officer Jacqueline Rodriguez, and Deputy District Attorney Doug Poston. Doug and Jacqueline, welcome to the Z1077 Up Close Show. Delighted to have you out with us. Likewise. Thank you, Gary. Thank you, Gary. And um, I, I got to say, I saw Jacqueline uh, make a presentation at the 20 Palms Rotary Club uh, some time ago and invited you uh, to come in, and I'm glad you could make the time. I know it's a, it's a long drive from San Bernardino to Joshua Tree, but we appreciate you doing that. Oh, not so. a problem. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And, and Doug, uh, are, are you with the local office? Are you out of San Bernardino, too? Uh, no, sir. I supervise the uh, office out here. Oh, you're the supervising uh, deputy district attorney. Yes, sir. I got to get that title right. Sorry about that. Oh, no, no worries at all. <laughs> anyway, I supervise our Morongo Basin office in Joshua Tree. Well, good. That's de- delightful. Thank you very much. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start uh, with the basic question. I should probably talk to, to the attorney on this one. What is the job of a district attorney? Well, our job primarily is to hold the guilty accountable for the crimes that they have uh, committed within the county of San Bernardino. And in this area locally, that would be in the Morongo Basin. And uh, 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 by what is the job of the district attorney, where do you fit in the legal system? We talked about this a, a little earlier. I think a lot of people don't quite understand whether we've got DA, uh, we've got public defenders, we've got law enforcement, uh, the officers out there on the street. In that, in that system, Sure. Where does, what does the district attorney do in, in that system? Sure. What the district attorney does is we'll review any criminal cases that are brought to us from a local law enforcement agency uh, out here in the Morongo Basin. That is typically the sheriff or the California Highway Patrol. Uh, sometimes it's Fish and Wildlife. And we review those cases to determine whether or not a criminal charge can be proven to a jury beyond a reasonable doubt. And if so, we file that charge and we are the ones that bring that action, which is effectively a lawsuit, in the name of the uh, people of the state of California. And we uh, go forward with the uh, prosecution of those cases to try to reach a uh, just result and remedy. Uh, And again, that's something we talked about ahead of time, but I want to illuminate that. So the charges uh, that are placed upon a criminal suspect are not placed by law enforcement. Those, those charges, law enforcement will arrest someone or detain them for investigation of a crime. They do that investigation, turn the report over to the district attorney, and then your office determines what charges they will get. So if someone's arrested, they're not charged with a crime, they're they're arrested for investigation. Sure. When you see uh, an arrest or uh, sometimes the sheriff's department here locally, uh, the Morongo station will put out a press release, we've arrested so-and-so for suspicion of, or we've arrested so-and-so for this particular uh, charge. Well, what that essentially means is that they have found that there's enough evidence in the arresting officer's mind, be it a sheriff, deputy, or otherwise, 
that they have probable cause to believe that the criminal offense occurred and that this particular defendant was involved. Uh, the agency will then provide that uh, report to the district attorney, and the district attorney will then decide on what, if any, uh, criminal charges to uh, file. And you often hear a misconception from folks that they think, well, I don't want to press charges, and it's really the district attorney that does that. Or, you know, the sheriff can say, we are arresting for uh, charge A, and, well, we think it's not quite that. It's really charge B. It's something lesser or it's something greater, depending on the facts of the case. That's what we will do. I'm glad you brought up that press charges thing because that is a, a misnomer. If someone assaults you, it's not up to you on whether that person is going to be charged with a crime. Correct. That yeah. would be up initially to the law enforcement agency, and uh, the district attorney is part of law enforcement in terms of yeah. the executive branch of government, but the initial uh, agency, sometimes called first responding agency, would be like the sheriff, and they would arrest someone for an assault, then provide that information, the reports, to the district attorney, and the district attorney would make the decision whether or not to file a criminal charge or to turn the case down. And we do get, you know, that kind of input from uh, the victims and folks that are involved in the criminal justice process uh, quite often, where they'll uh, want us to file a particular charge for a particular reason or not. And it goes both ways. But in terms of the decision, we take the input, we consider the input, but then it's a district attorney that actually makes a decision whether or not to initially file the case and then whether or not to continue on with the case and proceed in a particular way. Great. That's a, 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 that's a common misnomer, and that's a, a great explanation of that. Thank you, Doug. Jacqueline, uh, one of the things that intrigued me about your presentation to uh, the Rotary Club mm -hmm. was some of the ways the district attorney is ramping up ways to enforce uh, fentanyl, and, and in this particular case, to go after those people who are selling fentanyl. That's correct. Yeah. Uh, which is a scourge. Tell us a little bit about, about fentanyl. It's just it's, it's, it's this awful, awful substance. Yeah, so um, as of last year, San Bernardino County Public Health has declared fentanyl a public health crisis. And because of that, I wanted to, and the district attorney wanted to do some sort of an awareness campaign or outreach, because once these cases once a fentanyl case comes to our office, that means that there's a victim involved. Someone has either lost their life or someone has um, in, be injured from using fentanyl. So we want to try and get ahead of that because the only thing that we're able to do at that point is to hold somebody accountable for dealing the drugs. But what about intervention? What about awareness? What about prevention? So we created um, our Act Now program, which is what I presented to the Rotary Club. And it's basically just the facts surrounding fentanyl that we're trying to share with students, teachers, uh, parent groups, community groups, anybody so that we can raise awareness around this so that hopefully discussions are had within the homes, um, indications are are, are seeing seen inside the schools, and we can get ahead of this at least a little bit. And, and what are uh, the, what are the specific facts about fentanyl that makes it so dangerous? Yeah, so fentanyl itself is fifty times more powerful than heroin, and a hundred times more powerful than morphine. Wow! It's one of the most highly addictive su substances there is out there. And really, the opioid crisis, it, it, it can be pressed into or mixed into just about any illicit pill that's on the market today. So what we're seeing here is basically it's death in disguise. We have people that are taking pills that they think are Xanax, that they think are Percocets, that they think are Oxys, and they are not, not realizing that they're pressed with fentanyl 
unregulated amounts because this is done illicitly. And within minutes, they're dead. So this is where we were coming up with kids that are experimenting. We, we want to make sure that they understand any pill at this point that's on the market, if it hasn't been prescribed to you by a doctor, don't take it. Because you just don't know at this point, six out of 10 pills on the market have the potential to be a lethal amount of fentanyl. And I personally know uh, up, up in this area uh, of at least four young people who have died mm-hmm. from fentanyl. Uh, again, they, they took a pill not knowing what was in it. And, that, and that's the horrible danger. You don't know what's in it. Exactly, exactly. And it, all my presentations across San Bernardino County, I have to give usually a disclaimer saying, you know, if this becomes too much for you, please feel free to step out because I've had parents that, like you said, in the communities, they, they have friends, they have children, that this has affected so many people at this point. And, and we're really just trying to get ahead of it and give people the knowledge and the awareness and the information in their hands so this is not blindsiding them. Any idea why all of a sudden we're getting this influx of fentanyl in, in, into this area? Uh, I mean, five years ago, nobody had ever heard of it. And now it's become a, a public health problem. It's it's uh, it's killing yeah, hundreds so of people. Fentanyl itself is cheap to produce. It's easy to manufacture, and it's it's something that could be, like I said, pressed into every single pill. So it's all about the money. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So these manufacturers and dealers are are making money and and risking people's lives. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that intrigued me about your presentation, Jacqueline, was the efforts by the district attorney to be able to prosecute someone who sells the drug to someone who then right. dies as a result of that. How do we make the connection between the seller and the, and the and, and murder? Right. So w- when I give my presentation, I like to speak to DUI warning advisement, which is what um, this warning is based off of. So when you have somebody that is convicted of a DUI, they're given a warning saying that you understand that this behavior is dangerous. And if you continue to do this and it results in the loss of life, you may be charged with murder. And that's called the Watson advisement. The Watson advisor, the Watson that, is that that's a common legal term? It is. It's based on a uh, case by the same name, and it's something that is done in uh, every DUI prosecution that we do now in San Bernardino County. We provide that advisement to the defendant to let them know that what they are doing is, in fact, very dangerous. So now you have it on a piece of paper, the defendant signing, I understand that if I do this again, there is a, f- a, a, a bigger penalty for it. Correct. They're, they understand. They have been warned. In other words, they've been admonished that their behavior um, can, it is dangerous, and if it results in the loss of life, then they can be charged with murder. Now, recently, San Bernardino County extradited a woman from Arizona who was accused of selling fentanyl to a young Marine who lived in Yucca Valley, who took that and subsequently died. And she's been charged with murder. How how did we connect the dots on that? I'm, I'm not talking about investigation investigation wise but i'm talking about legal wise how, how did we how did we make a charge for murder for someone who sold a drug sure it's uh, very similar to what uh, uh, jacqueline just outlined for us which is the watson advisal in terms of how a dui uh, prosecution works and what is subsequent to that dui prosecution is now the subjective knowledge of the individual that the conduct is inherently dangerous to human life. Much like the sale of fentanyl, I, I don't think there's really anybody that is connected in any way to any kind of media 
that today could legitimately say they are unaware of mm -hmm. the dangers of fentanyl. Yeah. Uh, the substance is such that you actually have a better chance of, of playing Russian roulette with a six-shot revolver than you do of taking fentanyl. It's that potent, it's that dangerous, it's that deadly. And in California, the way our murder law works is that we do not have to have, the DA does not have to prove, rather, an express intent to kill in order to convict someone of murder. That, uh, that intent can be implied, such as an implied malice theory murder, which the fentanyl, uh, fentanyl death cases are under the appropriate circumstances, as in, and I believe that defendant's not, last name is Hagerty, if I, if I recall right, the one I, we extradited from yes, Arizona I here locally. I think it's Alicia Hagerty, I think Correct. Name, yeah, yeah in, in, in that particular case. Uh, and again, we can't talk about this specific facts yeah. necessarily, yeah. just that we uh, believe in that case, well, uh, like any other case we would review, that sufficient evidence exists for us to proceed on that theory of murder that the subject, the subject person knew, much like the DUI driver, they were told, they were warned, they have subjective knowledge from uh, any number of sources that that conduct is inherently dangerous and proceeded anyway. When was this Watson warning made part of of the system? I understand when, when someone's been arrested for something, they, they, they get a piece of paper which says, mm -hmm. I understand this and this and this. When did we start presenting a Watson letter to people who were uh, convicted of of, of drug sales. When, when did that start in the county? So I believe that was in the early 80s, the Watson advisal. Right. Watson, Watson itself, you know, is a case that's, that's you know, goes right. back relatively, uh, relatively far distance. Um, in terms of when we started uh, seeing those admonishments on our, well, on, on the district attorney's pleadings, uh, when we talked about how the district attorney files a case, it's a pleading, which is essentially a piece of paper that we file in court that says you are charged with this crime. And in our pleadings now with regard to the sales of narcotics, it's right there in writing, in black and white, and the defendant is put on notice that if you continue to sell narcotics, it is, a, it is an act that is dangerous to human life and you could be charged with murder if someone were to uh, purchase and consume those narcotics and then die. So we, we started doing that, I, I wanna say here locally, Maybe eighteen months ago, mm. Jacqueline. I'm not. I'm not sure. So, so it's it is relatively new. Right. Relatively using recent. this a, a, as a prosecutorial tool. Yes. Yeah. Uh, how many cases have we seen? I, I'm only aware of the one uh, from from our point of view, from the news point of view. But uh, you know, some of them aren't as high profile as this one. Well, I know. I know there's another case, at least one, and there there may be more. And uh, what I do, uh, Gary, is I, I you know I keep track of what I've got. Uh -huh happening mm -hmm. in the Morongo Basin, you know, in, in my office. And I know there are other cases in our other offices, uh, for sure, one in the uh, West Valley Division mm -hmm. that we have filed under the same theory. So I know that there are others. And whenever there is a homicide-related, uh, well, excuse me, a, a fentanyl-related, an overdose uh, case, the sheriffs now have an overdose response team, ORT for short, and they will roll out and make the investigation uh, and determine whether or not, for instance, an opiate like fentanyl was a cause of this particular person's death. And if so, is there a case to be made there? Mm -hmm. So that's that's generally how that works. So more and more of these dealers are, are signing these Watson advisories. And uh, do you expect to start seeing more and more prosecutions based on that strategy? I got to say, I hope not. I, I hope the message gets out that, mm -hmm. and you know, in, in terms of our ability to proceed with regard to a 
a Watson theory murder or a, a murder based on the sales of fentanyl to a person. We don't need somebody's you know, signature like a, like a contract. For instance, if a person uh, has gone through some sort of you know, drug education program, and, and I know we want to talk about diversion and things like that in a bit, and we can, we can do that as well, where they have then received that information and that knowledge that this particular substance, and we're talking about fentanyl here, is that dangerous and that deadly, that person is then charged with that subjective knowledge that that conduct in and of itself is inherently dangerous to human life, and that would provide part of the basis for the district attorney to later prosecute that individual for a death if that particular person then continues on with the sales of narcotics and sells to someone who then takes it and dies. So that, uh, that makes someone who deals in fentanyl understand they're at far more risk than they would this someone uh, s selling a substance that uh, isn't, isn't, uh, isn't so dangerous as fentanyl. So I'm making a lot of money because I'm buying fentanyl cheap and selling it, but now uh, I'm taking a big risk if I'm doing that. So we're taking away, the, trying to take away the incentives for for the distribution of fentanyl. Is that, is that the the basic uh, theory here? A absolutely. Uh, you know, again, uh, this is a substance that's far more. And you know, we've seen some of the legislature uh, folks in Sac Sacramento compare it to, you know, crack cocaine and some other substances that have you know kind of uh, been. Hot, hotter topics in terms of uh, what was causing problems, you know, in the United States of America um, in years past, but none of those substances are anywhere near the toxicity levels that fentanyl happens to be. So the idea is that we want to get the word out that you know this is that dangerous. Now, Jacqueline, in your uh, efforts to bring public awareness to mm -hmm. the problem, you've been you've been making the the tour of San Bernardino I County. I have. I've been as far as Trona, all the way to the West End. Um, I've even done some schools in L.A. County. And 29 Palms. And 29 Palms, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, as you are giving this information to parent groups, for mm -hmm. example, are they surprised? Are they aware? What is the reaction that you're getting as you're telling people this is really dangerous stuff? Yeah, um, I think of the big surprise usually comes when we talk about how social media is one of the most prevalent forms of sales and distribution. Um, some parents are just not aware of some of the apps like Snapchat and WhatsApp where some of these communications are happening. Um, most of the communications happen across social media, so it's a big eye-opener. Um, the prevalence of it and just how quickly it could depress the respiratory system and within minutes you can have a person completely unconscious and likely um, w in cases with the kids experimenting they're usually not doing this around their parents they may be in their rooms or somewhere away yeah. so parents are finding their kids unconscious you know and they don't know what's going on they don't know how the pill got there when it was delivered right to their doorstep by someone who sold it off of snapchat for Ten fifteen dollars, so that's that's just the tragedy of this whole thing, and then and just getting that awareness and the perspective out there for the parents that you know have these conversations. Don't be afraid of having open conversations with your children, but also know what's going on. Yeah, you need to you need to be a parent to your kids, not their buddy, and and that uh, I want to talk about social media a little bit. Uh, if you have a child who is under uh, who is 15 16 17 mm -hmm. years old you may want to give that child their freedom to do what they want on social media but on the other hand as a parent you're responsible for knowing 
what they're doing on social media, that could be very dangerous or, or kill them. So I guess it's a fine line uh, right. that, that you're advocating with parents. But are, are most of them surprised by uh, how cheap and e- easily available fentanyl is? Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. And y- even me, you know, I'm a parent myself, so I'm always cognizant of what's going on on social media, what's, what, what's the new trends, um, just things that... You know, we don't we don't spend a whole lot of time outside of our own little social media world. You know, when you want to think about what's going on, what are your kids seeing? There's actually people targeting kids. Um, so so just pay attention and, and be aware of what's going on and what's around your schools. Doug, here in the Morongo Basin, I guess we're sort of a microcosm of San Bernardino County. Uh, as far as percentage of, of of cases that you're prosecuting for 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 drug sales, are we higher than the county? Right about the average? Where do we compare with the county and and the rest of the country? You know, I haven't ever ran the stats specifically uh, in terms of what, you know, we see, you know, county-wide. What, you haven't memorized every statistics for the last 20 years for, for every type of crime? You know, I, I've been doing this since my 27th year. Uh, no, uh, <laughs> even even longer. Uh, no, I have not. Um, you know, I, I can tell you in terms of what, what we see uh, just about everywhere, I'd say the percentages are, are similar. In other words, if you gave me a number and you said, well, okay, it's X amount of cases in San Bernardino County are related to the sales of narcotics, and of those sales of narcotics, X amount of those are related to fentanyl. The numbers would be similar, and as you pointed out, we're microcosm, so you just kind of reduce that down, and the averages will be, I would imagine, be very, very similar. Um, we are seeing uh, fentanyl quite a lot here, uh, which is very disturbing uh, in a number of forms, and I know uh, Jacqueline mentioned, and I, I think you did as well, in terms of the, the pill and the size and stuff like that. They are putting fentanyl in everything. Uh, this isn't a you know limited to something someone purchases on social media because they think it's Adderall, or they think it's uh, Xanax, or they think it's you know fill in the blank. It, it's going in everything up to and including you know powder cocaine. And again, the issue is, is such that such a small amount. And I, and I brought um, and I know your listeners can't see it, but I brought something in for you, um, which is a uh, item that the DEA puts out. And that shows what a lethal dose of fentanyl is. What I'm looking at is a picture of a of a penny with a little white powder that is about the size of the date on the penny. That's how small that is. So five to seven salt grains. Five to seven salt grains could could be fatal. That's mm-hmm. a lethal dose. That's a lethal dose. And you goodness. put that much in uh, somebody, you know, gets on social media and they just say, well, you know, boy, I'd like some cocaine or, or you know, some substance like that. And they order it up and somebody delivers it to their door. And it's white, and it's powder, much like you see in the diagram there. And they have no idea that the dealer has actually cut it with fentanyl to make it appear more, uh, you know, uh, enjoyable, I guess, for the user, you know, for the the drug addict or drug user. And And fentanyl's cheaper than the actual cocaine. Oh, yeah. A lot lot cheaper. A lot cheaper to manufacture, uh, easier to get, all of those things. And they put that in there to make it appear more potent and uh, and all that. And the the reality is it, it is so so potent because they're not measuring in the lab. You know, you don't have a bunch of, uh, you know, men and women standing around in lab coats, you know, measuring this stuff. They're just throwing it in. Right. And you don't know what you're going to get. And if you get five to seven grains of the, the substance, that's it. You know, you're, you're going to die. I want to loop back to the, the Watson advisory thing because mm-hmm. that's what I keyed in on. Um, that is separate. There are a couple of bills now pending in Sacramento um, which have a similar way of prosecution but the Watson advisory precludes that. So that's been going on, ongoing, okay? 
uh, the bills are being proposed in Sacramento is a specific bill mm -hmm. uh, that would make it even more easy to prosecute. Can you tell me the difference between what's being proposed and what we have in place? So what is what was proposed and was actually killed yesterday, um, yesterday or the day before, uh, by the Public Safety Committee was SB 44, and that was authored by Senator Umberg and co-authored by Senator Rosalia Ochoa-Bogue over here in Yucaipa. Um, so that was killed by the Public Safety Committee for the third time, and that was a bill that was structured very similarly to the Watson advisal where they were proposing a warning for fentanyl drug deals to, to have that admonishment in there so that if that person continues to, again, sell and, and produce and provide, distribute drugs like fentanyl and it results in loss of life, then they may be charged with murder. So it's the same legal process, but it's just a far more direct way of, of, of going there? It would, it would have been. Yeah. Makes it makes a requirement as opposed to right now there's no legal requirement. There's no law that says the courts or, or anyone else for that matter has to provide that advisement, the Watson type advisement to the it, defendants. The, it is being done in San Bernardino County. This would make it statewide? It would make it a state law. Okay. I mean if they if they would do it, I I wouldn't expect this legislature to do that, no. Yeah, uh, and the legislature is, is hung up uh, really uh, along uh, party lines. We've got one side of the aisle who wants to get more criminals out of prison uh, and, and feels that uh, this particular prosecution is more affecting people of color. And you've got people on the other side of the aisle who say, uh, this is killing people. We've got to increase the penalties. We've got to make it easier to prosecute. So uh, I, think that's, I think that's what's going on in Sacramento. And neither, neither side is, is making much headway. So the, the yeah. bill just keeps, you would say it's been passed by, what, three times now? It's been killed three times so yeah. far. Okay. All right. Uh, I want to talk a little bit more uh, about uh, drugs and the danger but how the DA is dealing with them. There is a diversion program. We've got a couple of diversion programs. Now, I'm familiar with the drug court program. Um, can you tell us a little, a little background on, on drug court? What does that mean? Sure, absolutely. Uh, we have a couple of treatment courts out here in the Morongo Basin that we uh, use in uh, Joshua Tree Courthouse, and they are every other Monday, respectively, drug court and mental health court. And in particular, the drug court is just that. It's for, uh, well, Kind of back up, give uh -huh. a little background. Uh, the legislature and uh, the state of, well, people of the state of California ultimately uh, sort of decriminalized to the sense that we took a lot of the formerly felony narcotics charges and made those into misdemeanor charges, which um, reduced obviously the overall um, penalties, you know, for possession of narcotics, like for instance, simple possession of narcotics which everyone thought, well, that's going to kill the drug courts. So the, the initial uh, drug court, would you're arrested for selling drugs, it's a felony, but if you go through the drug court program, it, you can get it reduced to a misdemeanor. Or dismissed. Or dismissed. Right. Uh, but now that it's not a felony anymore, it's kind of de-incentivized someone to want to go through that program. It has and it hasn't. Um, and here, here's what I mean by that. Uh -huh. uh, the... Uh, Great possession of narcotics, for instance, uh, possession of methamphetamine for personal use, that is a misdemeanor now in California for which the penalty is, well, it's very low, very, very little. Right. Uh, the penalty, though, for, for instance, a, a residential burglary is up to six years in state prison, so much, much higher. Now, if we have an individual that we have here locally that is committing residential burglaries, stealing, 
to then uh, sell the property they've stolen to fund their drug habit, then that person would be the type of person that we would consider now for drug court. And once upon a time, it was all folks charged with possession of narcotics. Now, and it's taken a bit of flexibility on the part of the entire team, and that team involves probation, the district attorney, sheriff's department, the public defender, and the court. And it's what they call a collaborative court, and it really takes some flexibility on the part of all of those groups to sort of fit these folks into a program. So to keep the incentive now, if if I'm uh, breaking into houses for my drug habit, uh, I can go to drug court and have the breaking into houses charge reduced or dropped. Or dismissed, or correct. Dis- yeah. Right, if the person goes through the drug court program and it's anywhere from a year to 18 months, uh, usually closer to 18 months, for, quite frankly, and they are successful, then the case can be entirely dismissed and essentially off their record forever if they are successful in the program. And we've had a program out here that was uh, really started and really advanced by uh, you know the former supervising judge here, Rodney Cortez, who's now down in the uh, Central Division, but uh, you know has been very, very successful. They stole the, our judge. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> we, we don't have a charge yet for that, Gary, but uh, <laughs> we'll look into it. Judge, um, judge theft. De- yes. Deprivation of judicial uh, experience. Yes, yes. yes. Uh, he started it uh, uh, quite a while ago, actually. Yeah. Uh, ran it himself for a number of years, and then it has been run by uh, subsequent judges uh, thereafter. We still have that program here, and we're very proud of it. So uh, what is drug court? What is the program? What am I learning? What am I going through? What is happening to me uh, in order to get these charges dropped? A number of things. Uh, and depending on the severity of the addiction and the uh, stat, the state of the person when they uh, are, are placed into the program, it could mean that there's a residential treatment component, component where somebody is in a uh, treatment facility for, say, 60 or 90 days to sort of get cleaned out and start to learn some real different behaviors in terms of how am I going to survive? How am I going to live? Uh, What might work for me, meditation, might not work for that particular person. Instead, when they have stressors in their lives, they'll turn to narcotics. And what it's really kind of designed to do is get them out of that mindset. And the ultimate goal, of course, is that they, you know, stop using, stop committing crimes, stop being part of the system, and instead being a productive taxpaying member of society. One of the things that uh, Judge Cortez related to me years ago that he was most proud of of drug court is that it puts families back together. Drugs may have driven you know a mother to protect her children may 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 leave the husband or the husband to protect the children may leave the mother. Now you've got kids without a parent, you've got a, a broken house, you've got people who are struggling to to make a living, pay their rent. He says the most satisfying part was seeing families being put back together. That's that's a major component of it because the folks that get involved, you know, with narcotics and, and um, then take that path for their life, uh, a lot of times are essentially um, alienating themselves from their families, from their true friends. Instead, they have... Yeah, the, the pursuit of the drug becomes the most important thing in their life rather than the nurturing of a family. That becomes more important to them than love. Yeah, yeah, yeah it does. Uh, in, in terms of what actually happens besides a residential program, for instance, they meet every other week. Uh, the team will discuss the uh, progress of the particular individual who's in drug court with the individual. They'll also discuss uh, what you know what is working, what's not working, how are they dealing with stressors, how are they coping now, what alternate forms of behavior are they doing, are they attending 
uh, Narcotics Anonymous or Alcoholics Anonymous meetings? Are they keeping themselves busy otherwise? In other words, it's a very, very hands-on and frankly, very intensive approach uh, to the program. Uh, we have one of our uh, senior DAs, uh, Michelle Berge, who's been running the program here for the DA for, uh, for many years, who literally keeps a notebook and she knows about their friends, she knows about their families, she knows about their children, grand, you know, everybody. And that's part of it, is just really getting to know the person who's in drug court and finding solutions for that person and giving them literally all the help that we, uh, we can so that they'll get out of and away from that lifestyle and make better choices. Is testing part of that program? It is, yeah. Generally speaking, the uh, folks that are in uh, the drug court uh, program will be tested um, at least every week or at the direction of the team or probation. You know, for instance, probation can come by every, you know, uh, every other day. They don't, but, you know, they, they could to test someone who is, um, who is in the program just to make sure that they're, you know, that they're staring, they're staying clean. And the random testing actually is pretty effective because it, it kind of gives the uh, folks an awareness that, you know, they're going to be checking so be honest and most importantly be honest with yourself yeah well it, it, it makes them take it seriously so. correct uh, we're going to take a quick little break we'll be back with more of the up close show my guest in the studio today jacqueline rodriguez and uh Supervising Deputy District Attorney Doug Poston from the Morongo Basin Station. Uh, Jacqueline, of course, was a public information officer for the Santa Bernard County District Attorney. If you'd like to call and talk to us, our number is 760-366-8471. I'm going to talk about some of the other programs that the uh, DA has going on. I want to get a little more information on the mental health court. But first, I've got to pay a little rent. So we'll be right back with more of the Z1077 Up Close Show. Don't go away. COVID-19 treatments are safe, free, and Nobody widely available. Yeah. Hi, yeah. this is Michelle Zuccari, a registered nurse at Morongo Basin <laughs> yeah. Community Health Center. So much Did you know that COVID yeah. treatments yeah, there's, can there's stop the virus from multiplying in your body and may help you test negative sooner? They also may reduce the risk of developing long COVID symptoms. Call me at 760-365-9305, extension 1502, to make an appointment or to learn more. Ladder up to big, bold flavor with the hook and ladder sub from Firehouse Subs. Since day one, this Firehouse original has been piled high with smoked turkey breast, Virginia honey ham, and Monterey Jack. Now just $6.49 for a small at Firehouse Subs in Yucca Valley. See why people are still craving the same classic combo of flavors over 28 years later. At Firehouse Subs, a portion of their sales always goes to firefighters and their companies. Buy more subs, save more lives. Order online, get it delivered, pick it up with Rapid Rescue to go or dine in. Firehouse Subs in the Home Depot Center, Yucca Valley. Hop the whole family down to the Yucca Valley Community Center soccer field for the annual Easter egg hunt. Saturday, April 8th, children ages 8 and under are invited to hunt for candy-filled eggs and special prizes. There will even be a little hopper zone where parents can assist their toddlers in the hunt. The event begins promptly at 9 a.m., but all are encouraged to arrive early. Don't forget to bring your camera to take pictures with the guest of honor, the Easter Bunny. Admission is free. For more information, call the Yucca Valley Community Services Department or view the new Town of Yucca Valley Spring and Summer Activities Guide at yucca-valley.org. My ride smells just right, just right, just right, just right. Y'all gotta try that for Bree's car. Just right, just right, just right, just right. La 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 la. With up to 40 days of consistent sin, all over Bree's car clips right on your vent. You know my car's my happy place. Keep that smile on my face. 
Caves is a brand new fiction podcast that marries supernatural horror storytelling with an immersive psychological thriller. Tune in to uncover the chilling story and secrets as old as the caves themselves. Without monsters, there, there are no victims, no prosecutions, no defenses, no justice. Listen to the Manawak Caves. That's M-A-N-T-A-W-A-U-K Caves, wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back with the Z1077 Up Close Show. I'm Gary Dino, your host. Our producer is Michelle Alley. And our phone number for you to call and participate is 760-366-8471. Our guest in the studio today, representing the San Bernard County District Attorney, Public Information Officer Jacqueline Rodriguez, and supervising County uh, DA, Deputy District Attorney. i got to get this right. Supervising Deputy District Attorney for the Morongo Basin, Doug Poston. There, I got it right. You got it. I'll, I'll, I'll practice. I'll, I'll get it right later, uh, Doug. I appreciate that. Uh, we were talking about diversion programs, and you, and you mental, mentioned a mental health court. Correct. Yes, it's uh, very similar to the drug court in the sense that it is regarded as a treatment court. There's a team involved, same individuals, uh, probation, district attorney, public defender, court, um, and, of course, mental health professionals that come in and also uh, provide services to individuals that are charged with uh, crime uh, here in the Morongo Basin that do have some sort of uh, mental, you know, mental challenge. I don't want to say disease or defect because that's kind of putting a negative note on it, but have challenges that uh, have driven their criminal behavior. And what we try to do is get those folks the resources that they need so that they can uh, really, again, sort of live a functional and you know more productive and frankly rewarding to them and everyone else life so not as high profile as drug court uh, but still dealing with a very specific problem and again diverting someone uh, someone who would just be habitually in jail or habitually in trouble or, or habitually committing crimes getting them uh, out of that cycle sure you, you know there's not i don't think a person in the moronga basin that hasn't been uh, anywhere in the basin whether it's down in the valley or you know out out in wonder valley or anywhere else in between that hasn't seen someone they think wow look at this homeless crazy or or, or whatever right and there'll be uh, you know some behaviors that those uh, folks that are afflicted with that type of thing will engage in that you know lead to criminal charges uh, at some point um, you know vandalism is a very common one we had a very uh, you know, kind of a big case in uh, 29 uh, Palms recently with the uh, Freedom Plaza being vandalized. Yeah. And, you know, you look at that and you go, well, why would a person, you know, do that? And again, and I don't know if that individual has applied for or would be going through the uh, mental health court, but that's really what it is, uh, is the uh, system designed to get folks that have those kinds of difficulties that drive criminal behavior into a program that will help them cope and deal with the challenges that they face so that they are not acting out in a criminal way, leading to charges, and then which can ultimately lead to prison. Uh, and that condition could also lead to being unhoused. Correct. So. Yeah, yes. Yeah, that, that's part of it, too, is a lot of times they have, you know, nowhere to go, so they're out roaming the streets right. and, you know, stealing and, and you know, acting what we would, you, you and I and a lot of folks would call, well, that's, boy, that's odd, that's weird. And the uh, reality is that, you know, they may not have the tools necessary at the time to control that behavior and control where, you know, where they are, how they're acting, all those types of things, or what they're, what they're doing. And the program is designed to get those folks in and give them as many services as we can. And again, it's, it's a, a year to 18 month, sometimes longer program. 
and at the end of the case, uh, if successful in the program, it's dismissed and the case is gone. And it's you know it's a fantastic program. Yeah, I'm glad we support it out here. And again, families putting families back together, getting right. someone back working. Right. When they're back working, now they can afford a place to stay. So it's cyclical. I'm going to talk about, more about that in a minute. But first, Darlene is uh, on the radio. Let me go right to that. Darlene, you're on the air. Good morning. Hi, um, I have a question. What does what incentive does a drug dealer have to sell fentanyl to someone if it kills them? Okay, so what incentives does a drug dealer have to sell fentanyl to someone if it could kill them? I, I can no, answer. if it kills the client. Yeah, do you want to answer that or? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, darling, thanks for calling in. Uh, quite honestly, uh-huh. most, most drug cases are really driven by uh, one of two things. One, the, really, the primary driver is money, and you know, you, you can look at it and say, well, you know, why would the tobacco companies sell tobacco if you know tobacco is a you know can cause lung cancer and and, and all that? Yeah. Well, the reality is, the drug uh, users, the consumers of the illegal narcotics, won't go away. The dealers who are dealing for profit have absolutely zero regard whether or not they have a customer who's alive today or dead tomorrow because they're banking on having another one. Okay, Darlene? Okay. Okay. Thank you. All right, thanks for calling in. 760-366-8471, and uh, that was Darlene. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's all, it's all about the money. It's it really is. The, yeah. the money. Um, homelessness now... Uh, I have to say, San Bernardino County is doing a remarkable job about uh, facing the, I'm not going to say problem, but the challenge of homelessness. I mean, things happen to people, they're unhoused, they don't have a place to live. But San Bernardino County, and I think the last statistic I read is they've taken about 23% of the homeless population now. And they, by dealing with different agencies like the district attorney, the public defender, uh, mental, hor- mental health program, they've actually got 23% of those off the rolls, and they're, they're moving ahead pretty quickly. And I just saw where San Bernardino County has allocated $73 million mm-hmm. in different resources. They're going to leverage some federal stuff and some other stuff uh, and really going after the, the problem of homelessness. Um, in your experience with both drug court and mental health court, uh, is is this is that part of this overall effort? As is, is is it part of, of what the county is doing? You've you've heard of you know a holistic approach. Yeah. You know, and that's really what that kind of a program is because you know there's only so long a person can you know kind of get by on the street without you know resorting to uh, unfortunately criminal behavior. Yeah, you got to eat. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So. Exactly. And you know, so it, it's it's a more broad uh, look at things, which is, I think, what we really have to do in order to be successful. Look at the entire, you know, entire issue as opposed to, well, let's just get them in a mental health court, or let's just get them this service or that service. You really want to look at it as a package because mm-hmm. that's what we are, human beings that are packages like that. Uh, we had a representative of the uh, public defender's office here a few months ago on this show who explained that, that they will meet with a homeless person to determine the cause of that. Now, if the cause of that is because they can't get a job because maybe they were arrested for a misdemeanor 10 years ago and it's still on the record, then they'll work with that person to expunge the record or, uh, or, or get that off there so they can then become more employable. Uh, that's one of the tools being used. And I was just Im- 
impressed by how much effort the county is putting into alleviating homelessness. Right. The public defender has a uh, an attorney, uh, well, from the pleadings I see, um, whose job really is to just do that. You know, in other words, to folks that have been uh, through the criminal justice process to uh, remove that burden that is preventing them from, you know, seeking employment. Um, I, I see those petitions, you know, hundreds and hundreds of them every every year uh, to do exactly that. And if someone has been successful, then there's no reason why those petitions shouldn't be granted and that person's conviction should be alleviated and they should rejoin the workforce again. All these things, Gary, are, are really kind of designed to get somebody to function at the highest level that they are capable of. I'm going to shift gears a little bit. I want to talk about uh, the, the victim advocate program, the things right. you're doing for victims of crime. But first, I still got to catch up on paying a little rent. So we'll be right back with the next portion of the Z1077 uh, Up Close Show. Our guests in studio today, Jacqueline Rodriguez, and supervising Deputy District Attorney Doug Post. There, I finally got that got right. It. We'll be right back with more of the Z1077 Up Close Show. Don't go away. you're in the park and outside of the park too if you're staying in a vacation rental please be quiet and respect the neighbors for a party half a mile away is close sound travels far here we can hear you camp in designated sites only backcountry camping is allowed only in designated areas in those areas it is required that you hike out at least one mile from any road dirt or paved know that no trespassing signs do apply to you do not drive off of established roads Please be respectful. Campfires are only allowed in established campfire fire pits. Do not climb on or hang hammocks from Joshua trees. They are fragile and it is illegal. Carry out your toilet paper and bury your six inches or deeper. Not under a rock. Never, ever touch a tortoise. It could be life-threatening for them. Do not feed, approach, or try to touch any wildlife. Dogs are not allowed on trails. If you are in town, slow down. It's Joshua Tree. Be kind, be patient. Joshua Tree is busier than ever, and we're trying our best. Joshua Tree thanks you. Yucca Valley, what a great place to work. You'll spend more time with family and friends with a short commute, lower gas costs, and no traffic jams. And you'll find hundreds of job opportunities online at yuccavalley.org, along with resources for business education and small business startups. For an exceptional life, come work in Yucca Valley. Come on up to Yucca Valley. Buy a bit of the sky. Interest rates on hard money loans don't fluctuate with the Federal Reserve. This is Patty Brown, a.k.a. the Loan Lady or the Queen of Green. Do you need cash for home improvements? Trying to fix up your home to put on the market? We offer great alternatives and flexible lending for home improvement loans and mortgages. Our money to loan comes from local investors looking to invest in people, not credit scores. We've got money for your next project available and fast closing, too. Call me today at 365-7003. The Loan Lady. We want to be your real estate lender. And we are back with the Z1077 Up Close Show. I'm Gary Dineo. Our producer is Michelle Alley, and her phone number is 760-366-8471. Um, with every crime, there's a victim. And you have taken uh, ex actually extraordinary uh, care of victims. They have a, a, a victim advocate program. Can you explain to me how that works? I'm the victim of a crime. Yes. Someone has somebody has robbed from me. Uh, uh, what do I do? What are my rights? 
So, yeah, scary. So in our county, we process about 70,000 cases a year. Wow. And a lot of people, you know, it's it's hard to imagine that on the, each side of that case, there's usually a victim or several victims. And whether or not we pursue with filing charges on those cases or, or not, we always are there to help support our victims. And we have our, our Bureau of Victim Services, which is about 50 advocates that we have across the entire county. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention that we are hiring right now for the Yucca Valley Joshua Tree area. So if you're interested in victim advocacy, please reach out. A job opportunity. A job opportunity. And they can probably contact itself. Doug Poston at the <laughs> district attorney's office. No? Absolutely. 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 Okay. They, so yeah, yeah. More, more than happy to talk to him about that. It's okay. a very, very rewarding position. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And what does this advocate do? So our advocates are really there to support victims as they navigate the ju- judicial system and through the court process. So most people nobody asked to be victimized nobody quite understands the process until you're in it and it's scary it could feel lonely you are if you're a child you may have to testify up in front of court about some of the most horrific things that have ever happened to you so our victim advocates are really there to support each victim through the process and ensure that their rights are protected because there's Marcy's law which lists out all of the victims rights um, they help them apply for restitution through CalVCB. There's 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 money that could help them get back onto their feet if if they have missed any work or if they have any injuries due to their crime. So our victim advocates are really part of this big support system to help them get all the way through the criminal justice system and hopefully, like Doug had mentioned, to adjust and to to find some justice for what has been done to them. Is there a way for a victim to track what's what's going on with the suspect in that particular case? Oh, yep. So if there's a victim that has been assigned a victim advocate, they can absolutely reach out to their victim advocate in our office that's able to find that out. But there's also a program called Vine, which um, if you have a suspect that's in prison, it, it will give you their, rare, their whereabouts and what prison they're in and if they are in or out and they'll give you um they'll give you updates and notifications so if i'm suspect. the victim of a crime and mm-hmm. the person who uh, who did the crime against me has been convicted sent to prison mm-hmm. you'll let me know when he's being released or when they're being released yes okay. yes our victim advocates do that and if if they're for parole we have advocates that will work with the family to go to parole hearings and things like that as well okay well i was i was remiss in taking care of business so we're going to take one more little break we'll be back with the final portion of the z1077 up close show right after these brief messages don't wait until you're sick to start thinking about your health hi this is sue from sue's health foods For decades, we've been committed to providing our community with quality products and information. We carry only the highest quality supplements available. We offer therapeutic-grade essential oils and non-toxic body care products. Ever think about making your own? If so, our variety of organic bulk herbs, beeswax, and shea butter will put a smile on your face. About food, we offer bulk and packaged, refrigerated and frozen. Every item at Sue's is hand-chosen and labels are always checked. We're very selective. Take time now to care for and nourish your body. Our friendly and caring staff are here to help. Sue's Health Foods, officially since 1984. Sue's Health Foods, committed to your good health. 
heard Think Global, Eat Local? Well, you can't get any more local than with the bounty of fresh fruits and vegetables you'll find every Saturday at the Joshua Tree Certified Farmer's Market. Feel a sense of community when you spend your Saturday in Joshua Tree. There are many artisanal products, too. While you're there, stop at JT Health Foods, your informed mind, healthy body connection. They even carry a large selection of organic wines and microbrews and food for your pet. JT Health Foods, open every day for your well-being. Joshua Tree's the place to be. The there's always time for the drive through deal. Because no matter how fast you are at making breakfast, McDonald's is faster. Nothing fits your morning routine better than a hot and savory sausage McMuffin with egg. That sizzling sausage, melty cheese, and freshly cracked egg is ready when you are. Right now, get two for just $5.50. Prices and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal. Single item at regular price. And we are back with the Z1077 Up Close Show. Our guest in studio today, Jacqueline Rodriguez, the Public Information Officer for the San Bernardino County District Attorney's Office and Supervising Deputy District Attorney Doug Poston. Again, both thank you both very much for uh, coming in today. Now, Jacqueline, you, you've been on a mission lately, and that's bringing the, the fentanyl message out there. That's right. Uh, for someone who wants to find out more or specifically what your message is, how would I find out about that? Yeah, that's right, Gary. So I presented to you at the 29th palms rotary club but that presentation is not simply just for me to be able to present we put that on our website under sb county da slash act now and the presentation that i give to you and to schools and and to parents it's all there so that anybody anybody can share that information and even give that presentation once they once they go through it and in addition to that there's also resources like the cdc fact sheets um, and then also behavioral health department of public health hotline numbers in case you have somebody in your family that you're concerned about that may be dealing with the opioid abuse. What's the one thing that you think parents can do uh, to try to try to stop uh, the use of fentanyl with their kids? Uh, what do we need to watch for? What do parents need to do to protect their children? Well, I mean, it really it really starts with the parents and the teachers just being aware and having that open line of communication no matter what. Um, obviously trying not to shame anybody or let them feel like guilt over coming to you with maybe a problem or an issue that they feel they're concerned about. It's a big one. And communication. Communication, yeah. absolutely. Right. Thank you, Jacqueline Rodriguez and Doug Poston. That's going to do it for the Up Close Show. I'll be back again next week. Until then, thanks for listening. Drive carefully, and God bless. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Up Close a weekly talk-in interview program presented in the public interest by Z1077 News. Join Gary Denio again next Friday at 10 for more Up Close.